Well, as we've been walking through Revelation together, we have been using a summary statement to remember what the whole message of Revelation is, and I want to show that to you. Jesus, so in, in the book of Revelation, what's happening is Jesus reveals to his churches God's sovereign plan of judgment and redemption culminating in his second coming. So they would persevere in following him through this present evil world, enduring tribulation, resisting temptation, and bearing witness before the nations until the day God judges evil and Jesus leads them to victory and eternal life with him in the new creation. Now, this is what the whole book of Revelation is about. Uh, but what we're going to see is that our text today hits just about every aspect of that statement. So with that statement in mind, um, let's read together Revelation 14, and we're going to be in verses 6 through 13. Since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of Jesus himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Revelation 14, starting in verse 6. The Holy Spirit says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the command, commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I want you to imagine that you're running a race. You've been running for a while. You've been running uphill. And you're exhausted. In fact, you see another runner in the distance. And they've collapsed to the ground. And you think, poor guy. But if I have to keep going like this, I'm probably going to be joining him. Then you notice another runner, and they're doing so well, it looks like they're hardly breaking a sweat, which is really concerning 
Because you notice that runner is running in the opposite direction that you're running. And you start to second guess, have I been running the wrong direction this whole time? Could I have been running downhill this whole time? So so here's how it looks from your perspective. I feel like giving up. I'm afraid I'm going to be another failure like that guy. And I think I might be running in the wrong direction. But imagine how your perspective would change if you looked ahead and saw the finish line. You notice it's only about 300 yards in front of you. Then you notice that the person that you saw collapsed is actually on the other side of the finish line. They didn't fail. They finished. And then it hits you. That runner you saw running in the opposite direction, that's the one who's actually running in the wrong way. Well, this is what's happening in our passage today. This passage is meant to shift our perspective by showing us that the finish line is close ahead. The finish line in this case is the fast approaching return of Christ and the final judgment. There's a whole world around us that needs to be warned because they are running in the opposite direction. Those of us who are feeling exhausted need to be encouraged not to give up, but to persevere because the finish line is close. And we need to recognize that those who have finished the race before us are not failures. They are resting in victory. Here's the message of Revelation 14, 6 through 13 for us today. The coming judgment demands an urgent response. The coming judgment demands an urgent response. I see three urgent responses to the coming judgment in these verses. And the first is be warned. Be warned coming judgment demands an urgent response so be warned so at the beginning of our text really throughout our text john sees a vision of three different angels flying through the sky one after another each one declares a message and the three messages they declare are messages that everyone in the world needs to hear today the first message is fear god Fear God. We see this in verses 6 and 7. Look again at verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Now we've seen that phrase, every nation, tribe, language, people, uh, a couple times already in the book of Revelation. This is all of humanity, all who live on our planet. In chapter 5, We were told that Jesus purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In chapter 7, we saw these people that Christ purchased, this countless multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God. 
But how do we get from chapter 5 to chapter 7? How do we get from Jesus' death, where he purchased all those people, to the moment when all those people are finally assembled together in heaven? Well, we get from point A to point B through the proclamation of the gospel. As every nation, tribe, language, and people hears the gospel, some from each of those groups respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. Those are the ones purchased by the blood of the Lamb in the past. They're the ones who are going to be gathered around the throne in the future, and they are the ones who need to hear the proclamation of the gospel in the present. And by the way, they need to hear the proclamation of the gospel through the church, through you. Remember, as we see this angel proclaiming, this is symbolic language, this is a, a vision an angel is not going to obey the Great Commission for you. You are responsible to proclaim the gospel to the world. We read it in Romans 10 a moment ago. Scott read from Romans 10 that they will not hear without a preacher. That's not me. That's you. Well, that's me too. But it's not just me. It's you. We've got to send preachers out to proclaim the gospel. Jesus calls his disciples to go tell the world the gospel. The nations will not hear unless a disciple of Jesus tells them the gospel. In any case, in this vision, John hears this angel proclaim the gospel. So when he hears this angel proclaim the gospel, what does the gospel sound like? Is it God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Is it Ask Jesus into your heart. Look at verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Fear God? Give him glory? Judgment? Is this good news? Is this the gospel? Yes. God, who created everything, created humanity to fear him and to give him glory. Now, when I say fear, fear doesn't mean that God intends for us to be shaking in our boots in terror all the time at the thought of God. No, to fear God is to want God to be glorified so much that you shudder at the idea of displeasing him because you love him so much. You want to worship him. God made us to live for him, to worship him. He made us to find our greatest joy in pleasing him alone. Sin is the failure to fear God and give him the glory he deserves. As fallen humans, we do not fear God. We are not most concerned about pleasing God. Instead, we shudder at the idea that other humans might be displeased with us. Or we just live to please ourselves all the time. The heart of sin is glorifying creation instead of glorifying the creator. Fearing creation instead of fearing 
God. And for our sin against him, God is bringing his judgment. That's the declaration that we hear in this verse. The judgment is coming. We have failed to glorify God, the almighty creator, and for that we deserve to be condemned. And on the last day, God will send his Messiah, Jesus Christ, to bring about that judgment. All those who have failed to fear God and give him glory will receive the wrath of God. And on our own, we will not change. On our own, we will not fear God and give him glory. On our own, we will not worship the creator. But Jesus died and rose again to save us from our failure to glorify God. He died and he took the judgment of God on himself, the judgment we deserve for our failure to fear God. And because Jesus rose again, he offers new life, transformation, resurrection. Jesus' work enables us to fulfill the purpose that God created us for, to fear him and give him glory. So the call of the gospel ultimately is fear God and give him glory. Come to Christ and he will bring you back to your purpose of fearing God and giving Him glory. The call is to repent, to turn away from glorifying anything else and to turn toward God and worship Him. Those who do fear God and give Him glory are those who have been forgiven of their creature worship and who have been transformed in their hearts by the grace of God and through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So then, do you fear God and give him glory? Do you fear God and give him glory? That's the call of the gospel, to fear God and give him glory. If your idea of the gospel does not result in you fearing God and giving him glory, you have a wrong idea of the gospel. Unfortunately, many people believe false gospels. Many people think the gospel is, you know, I'm, I'm living my life to please myself, and if I believe in God and add him onto my life, then he'll bless me, which will really please me, and God will give me an even better life for myself. And I don't want to go to hell, that wouldn't please me. So I'll just ask Jesus in my heart to make sure that I go to heaven where I'm going to be pleased for all of eternity. But the true gospel is not about us pleasing ourselves and using God to please us. The true gospel is I'm living life to please myself and I deserve condemnation for that. I need to be forgiven by God for how I've lived to please myself and failed to glorify him. I need to turn away from pleasing myself and find true joy in pleasing God. I need to deny myself and follow Jesus and trust in his death and resurrection to forgive me and to transform me. So do you live to please God? Is the glory of God what is most important to you? If not, there is good news.
you can be forgiven. You can be transformed. You can fear God and give him glory because of what Christ has done for you. So turn to Jesus. But be warned. If you don't, judgment is coming. Fear God and give him glory. The second of these three messages that John hears is flee Babylon. Flee Babylon. We need to be warned. We need to fear God, but we also need to flee Babylon. Look at verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So one of the characters that we'll hear more about in the coming chapters of Revelation is this prostitute, Babylon. Babylon is just one more picture in Revelation for the world under the control of the god of this world, Satan. We've already seen a couple of those, uh, but uh, if, if the beast, who we saw in chapter 13, if the beast represents how Satan wields power in the world, and the false prophet, who we also saw in chapter 13, represents how Satan deceives with ideas, then the prostitute represents how Satan seduces with sensuality. Babylon is a thread that's really woven all throughout the Bible. Throughout Scripture, this idea of Babylon always represents humanity living independent from God. Babylon began in Babel, when the people of Babel built a city and a tower to make a name for themselves in rebellion against God, and you can find that in Genesis 11. But then, of course, there was the actual historical Babylonian empire ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar, and he himself said in Daniel 4.30, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And ultimately in Scripture, the name Babylon came to refer not just to the historical empire, but really to the sinful world as a whole, independent from God, living to glorify humanity. And right now, today, Babylon is alive and well. We live in Babylon. In Babylon, humans live for themselves and to make a name for themselves. Babylon is a source of all sorts of sensual delights. Babylon is a producer of wealth and prosperity. And according to Revelation, all nations are intoxicated with Babylon's immorality. So we need to hear this message of warning Babylon will fall. The reign of Babylon is going to end. God will judge the prostitute Babylon. The message of this one verse, verse 8, is going to be unpacked an entire chapter later, chapter 18. And in verse 4 of Revelation 18, John writes, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. 
We as God's people are exiles in Babylon. So we need to guard our hearts against the seduction of the prostitute around us. Babylon will give you so much wealth and pleasure, it will lull you into thinking you don't need God. Babylon will try to shape your values so that you think the Bible is old-fashioned, backwards. Babylon will try to shape your identity and make you think that this world is your home so that you care more about this life than the next. So God is calling out to the church, come out of Babylon. Don't take part in her sins. Don't place your hopes for prosperity and happiness and purpose and meaning in this world. Be warned. Babylon will fall. So flee Babylon. Third message, flee judgment. We need to fear God. We need to flee Babylon and we need to flee judgment. John hears a third message of warning in verses 9 and uh, 9 through 11. Look with me at those verses again. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. We saw back in chapter 13 that the beast is the way in which Satan works through human kingdoms. To receive the mark of the beast on your forehead or your hand is symbolic. It's not literal or physical. It's a symbol for belonging to the world and giving allegiance to the world under the control of Satan. So this angel declares that those who give their allegiance to the world will receive the wrath of God. Here in these verses, the wrath of God is described as a cup full of undiluted wine. And this is the same phrase used in verse 8 for the wine of the passion of the prostitute's immorality. So in other words, if you drink Babylon's cup of immorality, you will drink God's cup of wrath. Those who go after the world, instead of fearing God and giving him glory, will receive God's judgment. God's wrath is also described here as fire and sulfur, which, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, should bring to mind the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Like Babylon, these, uh, these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, became synonymous with worldliness and immorality all throughout Scripture, and God judged the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and sulfur. We see in our text here, that God will bring that same judgment on all those who follow in their footsteps of worldliness. And, And we need to observe in this passage that God's wrath on sinners is eternal. The angel says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever 
and they have no rest day or night. When someone dies in rebellion to God, they do not cease to exist. When a sinner goes to hell, they don't just put in a few years and then get relief. The torment of God's wrath is never-ending and unrelenting. So be warned. Judgment is coming. Flee this coming judgment. Don't go after the world. Don't give your allegiance to this world and its systems. Turn to Jesus. Turn to the one who the night when he was betrayed prayed in Matthew 26, 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus went to the cross to drink the cup of God's anger filled with the wine of God's wrath. And he did not drink it because he deserved that wrath. He drank the cup of God's wrath for beast worshipers like you and me. He drank it as a substitute so that you wouldn't have to drink a drop. In his death, Jesus took on himself all the condemnation that you deserved for your sin. So turn to Jesus and flee judgment. I discovered this hymn this week. The curse of death was in our cup. The cup was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop and emptied it for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up. There is no curse for me. Because love drank the bitter cup, we can flee judgment. The coming judgment demands an urgent response. So be warned. The second response we should have to the coming judgment is to be faithful. We should be warned. We should also, we should also be faithful. So after recording those three angelic messages that we saw, John writes to his readers in verse 12, Hear is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So what does it mean to be a saint? Well, a saint just means devoted to God, set apart as holy to God. You become a saint by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Every believer, every Christian is a saint. And according to John, notice, what is it that saints do? He says they keep the commandments of God and they keep their faith in Jesus. That's what it means to live life as a saint. Saints keep the commandments of God. Now, we need to be clear, obeying God does not earn eternal life, nor does obeying God earn favor with God. 
At the same time, the mark of a saint is that a saint keeps the commandments of God. It's the evidence that someone has become a saint. John, who wrote Revelation, also wrote 1 John, and in 1 John 2, 2 and 3, he says that Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We are saved by the blood of Jesus alone. But the evidence that we have been saved by the blood of Jesus alone is that we keep his commandments. So saints keep the commandments of God. Saints also keep their faith in Jesus. We are saved by faith alone. But saving faith is not a one-time decision. True faith endures. Paul says in Colossians 1.23 that on the last day, Christ will present you holy and blameless before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So John who identifies saints as those who keep the commandments of God and those who keep faith in Jesus, calls on saints to endure in these things. So endure. Endure in keeping the commandments of God. You know, the longer that we have to endure as Christians, the longer that we have to run the race, as it were, the easier it is to become complacent in our obedience to Jesus. It's easy to become so comfortable with being a hearer of God's word that we can forget that we still need to be a doer of God's word. So make every effort to keep the commandments of God. That means disciplining yourself to read and hear and meditate on Scripture. Uh, That means actively examining your heart to identify areas of disobedience. And that means strategically and zealously taking practical steps to replace sinful habits with obedient habits. So, for example, I I open up the Bible and I see God calls me to put away anger and put on compassion and patience. Uh, I look at my life, I confess I'm prone to anger. So I make a plan to slow down, to remember Christ, to speak with compassion Be faithful to keep the commandments of God. But endure also in your faith in Jesus. We want to endure in obedience, but we want to endure in faith. The longer we have to endure as Christians, the easier it is to find our righteousness in something other than Christ. It's easy to become so comfortable having God's favor that you forget that you don't deserve it. So make every effort to keep your faith in Jesus alone. When you sin, don't cover it up so that you can keep up this front of self-righteousness. Confess your sin and place your faith in Jesus' righteousness. It's also easy to drift into trusting something other than Christ as our functional Savior. We place our hope in a significant other place our hope in a leader. We place our hope in a career. We find our joy in comforts and pleasures and prosperity. So again, make every effort to keep your faith 
in Jesus alone. Look to Jesus for your identity. Look to Jesus for your righteousness. Look to Jesus for your standing and your hope and your confidence. Find your greatest treasure in Jesus. The coming judgment demands an urgent response. So be faithful. And finally, be fearless. Be warned. Be faithful. Be fearless. John shares one more heavenly message in verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This is the second of seven blessed statements in Revelation. That word blessed means flourishing or happy. It describes someone living their best life. The first blessed statement was all the way back in Revelation 1.3, which said, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. We should, the word keep should sound a lot like verse 12, by the way. But in our text, we have this second blessed statement. In our text, a voice from heaven declares that those who die in the Lord are blessed. Those who know Jesus and trust in Jesus as Lord and who die to go be with him are flourishing. They're living their best life. Why? The Holy Spirit tells us here, Christians who die get to rest from their labors. On the day we as Christians die, the time for endurance will be over. The battle against sin will be over. Our suffering through the brokenness of this world will be over. The Spirit says that the dead in Christ get to rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. They endured in faith and trusted Jesus until the very end. And their lives bore the fruit of faith all the way to the end. Their persevering faith bore the evidence of good works, obedience to the commandments of God. And because of their genuine and lasting faith in Christ alone, they get to rest from their labors. Those who trust in Jesus do not have to fear death. In fact, we will actually be flourishing when we die in the Lord. So when you get that diagnosis, don't lose hope. When the number of years you have left is smaller than the number of years you've already lived, don't be discouraged. If you are in Christ, every day you get closer to death is one day closer to everlasting flourishing in the presence of Christ. And before we reach that day, 
when we grieve Christians in our lives who die, we grieve, but we grieve with hope. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Don't fear the death of your Christian loved ones. The loss will be painful. The sadness is unavoidable. But as we sang, our hope springs eternal. We can rest knowing they are resting in the presence of Christ. The coming judgment demands an urgent response. So be fearless. As you run the race that is set before you, fix your eyes on Jesus. He is coming soon. When you're weary from running, remember that he calls us to be faithful and he can give us the strength to keep carrying on. Look to those who have gone before you who are already resting from their labors and tell the world that Jesus is coming, that they need to turn around, stop running the wrong way, Tell the world that the judgment is coming because the coming judgment demands an urgent response. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word to us. I thank you that your word will not let us become complacent. I pray that we would hear your word and respond accordingly. We hear your word and that we would fear you and glorify you. Lord, that we would flee from this world and therefore from the judgment that you will bring upon it. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful that we would stay close to Jesus, that we would run in your strength, and Lord, that we would run fearlessly, trusting you with our lives and the lives of our loved ones. Lord, I pray we would respond to your word, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.